Okay. Psalm 68. Let me tell you something I continued to read as I looked at different things on Psalm 68. This was from several different sources. That this is considered the most difficult psalm to interpret in the entire book of Psalms. The problem is not just that it is longer. The problem is that it is difficult to interpret. It's hard. It is. And we're going to do the best with it that we can tonight. And I hope um, that we can at least give you some kind of main message of what it is pointing at. And we're going to break down section by section. I I was going to write all the titles on the board. I think sometimes I write that only to quickly erase it. And maybe let's just go a section at a time. But um, let me just begin by reading the heading. And um, I'll read the first ten verses and we'll come back and take them section by section. But for the choir director, a psalm of David, a song. Let God arise. Let his enemies be scattered. Let those who hate him flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so let the wicked perish before God. But let the righteous be glad. Let them exult in the Lord. Let them rejoice with gladness. Sing to God, sing praises to his name. Lift up a song for him who rides through the deserts. And some of your versions may have something different there. Whose name is the Lord and exult before him. Verse 5. A father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows is God in his holy habitation. God makes a home for the lonely. He leads out prisoners into prosperity. Only the rebellious dwell in a parched land. O God, when you went forth before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, Silah, the earth quaked, the heavens also dropped rain at the presence of God. Sinai also quaked at the presence of God, the God of Israel. You shed abroad a plentiful rain, O God. You confirmed your inheritance when it was parched. Your creatures settled in it. You provided in your goodness for the poor, O God. Okay. The heading, uh, nothing out of the line of what we would expect. The choir director, a psalm of David, a song. 66 and 67 were not specifically attributed to David, but 68 is. The first line, let God arise. Do you all have a good footnote beside of that verse? Sometimes your footnotes open to you a multitude of ideas. Do any of you have a cross-reference or side-reference there? Numbers 10. Okay. What verse there? Uh, 35. Numbers 10, verse 35. Seems to be a definite allusion to that particular verse. 
Now, what was happening in the context of Numbers 10? In Numbers 10, the children of Israel were setting out on their journey, taking the ark before them as they go. And when they began that journey with the cloud of the Lord's presence leading them, they would say this in verse 35, Rise up, O Lord, and let your name, let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. When it comes to rest, he said, Return, O Lord, to the myriad thousands of Israel. So as they journey in the wilderness, and God is leading them by a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire, they take up the ark, they take up the ark with these words, begging God to arise and God to scatter all their foes before them. To give them a safe journey, it's implied, but to scatter their foes and those who hate him. You can see the similarity between the language of verse 1 and Numbers 10, 35. A difference is that in Numbers 10, 35, these are imperatives. Arise, O Lord. But as the New American Standard translates this, it's let God arise. It is a prayer that God will arise and God's enemies will be scattered. And as God is guiding the people, there is a contrast between the wicked and the righteous. That contrast really starts at the end of verse 1. When God arise and leads them, then those who hate him will run away. They'll run away. But in verse 2, you see, as smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so let the wicked perish before God. And then in 68.3, he contrasts the righteous with the wicked. Let the righteous be glad. Let them exult before God. Let them rejoice with his gladness. He uses two illustrations in verse 2 of judgment upon the wicked. Let them be driven away as smoke is driven away. Psalm 37 verse 20 had spoke of the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. It said, let the wicked be, but the wicked perish and the enemies of the Lord be like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. <coughs> so it uses that illustration. So one illustration is like the smoke that's blown away in the second like wax melts before the fire. Psalm 97 uses this illustration. 97.5 The mountains melted like wax at the presence of the Lord. At the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. So the text tells us May those all who hate you flee. May the wicked perish as smoke 
and as the wax melts before the fire. In contrast to this, the righteous rejoice, they exult, and they are glad. What will be the response to the Lord's coming as described in this verse? Well, it depends on what character you are. In a way, this evokes Psalm 1. Remember Psalm 1 made the clear distinction between the righteous and the wicked. The the wicked uh, will not stand the congregation of the righteous, uh, but they are uh, like chaff, which is blown away. In contrast, the the, uh, righteous... Uh, The Lord knows the way of the righteous. And so you see that kind of statement. Now, I want to give you ample opportunity, even if I don't stop after every section, to ask. Because I know you may be as perplexed by this psalm as, as I am. And you can ask a question. I could not give you a good answer. But uh, we'll do the best we can. David. Uh, the ESV in the first verse, the first three words, it says, God shall arise. Mm-hmm. As opposed to let God arise. Yes. Which I thought was a little different shape. The, um, it is, they're both looking at the same thing and wondering how best to word it, how best to translate it. Uh, the New American Standard translators are taking that as a jussive, which is a prayer or a request that God do something. But you can use the the the, the verbs are third person, uh, and you can you could translate them legitimately either way, like that, David. So that's a legitimate translation. Whether it's more of a statement of confidence or whether it is a plea that God do it. Okay? Now, verses 4 through 6, see what I called, it is the picture of God, praise God, who cares for the helpless. He cares for the helpless. In verse 4, sing to God, sing praises to His name. Lift up a song for Him who rides through the desert, whose name is the Lord, and exalt before Him. Now, Do any of you have, and I read the New American Standard, and the ESV also has this um, in verse 4 of riding through the desert. Do any of you have riding upon the clouds or anything to that effect? Mary, what what was that you were looking at? New King James. New King James. NIV. NIV. Okay. So there's a question, is it 68.4? Riding through the desert or riding uh, through the clouds. Um, The truth about the clouds um, 
is affirmed later, even if it isn't in this verse. Verse 33 will speak of the Lord as one who rides um, rides in the heavens. To him who rides in the heavens. Doesn't say clouds, but doesn't does have the word heavens here. Um, either way, it is a reference to God leading his people. It may be a reference to the exodus from Egypt. Some think it is. And him leading his people out through the wilderness. But one of the things that I think that does go on in Psalm 68, maybe not as frequently as some writers call attention to it, but one of the things, it is contrasting the Lord's claims with the claims of other gods in the ancient Near East. For example, Baal, B-A-L-L, was described as the one who rode the clouds. And the Bible is saying it's not he who does this, but it is the Lord who does this. It is Israel's God who does it. The things that these people attributed to their gods, Psalm 68 and other Psalms are stating, no, their gods could not do that. Only our God can do that. And often God is pictured in the Old Testament as one who rides through the heavens or rides upon the clouds. But just as verse 3 called us to rejoice with gladness, verse 4 does as well. Sing praises, sing praises to his name. His name is the Lord and exalt before him. One of the ideals of a king in the ancient world was a king was one who cared for all of his subjects, cared for all of his people. And what we see in Psalm 68 is God lives up to that ideal. God cares for the weakest, for the most defenseless. Look at verse 5. He is a father of the fatherless and a judge for widows. Widows did not have a husband to stand up for them. Children, orphans did not have a father to stand up for them. All of this points indirectly to the importance of the male in the home. And for one to be a fatherless or a widow was to be subject to be vulnerable and exploited in the ancient world. But God is emphasizing that it's particularly these that he cares for. That doesn't mean he doesn't care for everybody else. But it is emphasizing that he cares for all by showing that he cares for the least. He cares for those who are least. And this kind of language about God is pretty common in Scripture. In Deuteronomy uh, chapter 14 and verse, excuse me, Deuteronomy 10 verse 18. Deuteronomy 10 verse 18. He executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. God is caring for those 
who are least. Now we could give a lot of other passages that give the same kind of idea as Deuteronomy 10 and verse 18. But God cares for all of these. God in His holy habitation. God who may be in heaven far removed from the troubles of earth. But He still cares for these who are weak. And the Bible tells us not only these, but God makes a home. God makes a home for the lonely. Makes a home for the lonely. Now this word lonely is only used 12 times in the Old Testament. But let me tell you several of the times they're used. It's used three times just in Genesis Genesis 22 to talk about Isaac being Abraham's only son. And it's used of Jephthah's only daughter in Judges 11 and verse 34. This word, lonely, you can see the idea by it referring to an only child. It is someone who has no one else. He makes a home for the lonely. He leads out prisoners into prosperity. This word, prisoners, can refer to one imprisoned as we think of it. But you remember too, Israel didn't come completely have a system of imprisonment like we do today. And sometimes it refers to people taken into captivity to another nation. But either way, whether it be the one in prison or whether it be the one in captivity, God cared about them. And God could lead out these broken people into a situation of blessing. I think it's interesting that as God is described in verses 5 and 6, there are like four different phrases to emphasize God's care for the weak and God's care for the broken. But there's also one phrase that emphasizes His judgment Upon the wicked. In verse 6, only the rebellious dwell in a parched land. In contrast to the to the orphan, to the widow, to the lonely, and to the prisoner is the one that's rebellious. Now, what, what that tells you is it's not just the idea that one is an orphan or a widow or lonely or a prisoner but that it is one in these circumstances who looks to God knowing that He is their help. He is their hope. The Bible often mentions the poor this way. They'll be mentioned in a way similar to this in verse 10. But this doesn't mean if there's a dispute between the poor man and the one who has something, that we always know the poor man's right. It is saying, though, that often because of his circumstances, the poor man may be more inclined to call on God. And it's the one who looks to God who is uh, in the right. 
often. Any questions about three through four through six? Okay, at this pace, Bob, but we're going to at least be out of here by 10. I don't think you have to worry about that 10.30 okay. alarm. Okay. Um, so, verse, verse 7. O oh God, when you went forth before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, Selah, the earth quaked, the heavens also dropped rain at the presence of God, Sinai itself quaked at the presence of God, the God of Israel. Now, here, just as God has been praised for caring for the helpless, what we're going to see in verses 7 through 10 is God leads the people through the wilderness. He leads the people through the wilderness. Now you specifically see a historical site here. You see a reference in verse 8 to Sinai. A reference to Sinai. Um, There'll be another reference to there in verse 17. In Mount Sinai is where Israel comes in Exodus 19. And the Bible shows us that the um, in Exodus 19 verses 16 through 25 the, and in Exodus 20 verses 18 through 21 the mountain is surrounded by smoke and there is the sound of a of a, of a trumpet. It's a, it's a loud sound. And there is thunder and there is lightning. And the smoke, it says, is going up like the smoke of a furnace. Everything about this site is overwhelming and intimidating. And God is showing how great He is, how glorious He is. And here it describes it as the earth quaked. The earth quaked. That's also part of that picture. The earth was shaking. Uh, it is incredible how much energy is released in an earthquake. I can remember hearing years ago that it takes two weeks of a hurricane to release the same energy that you see released in 10 seconds of an earthquake. Now think about that. And the earthquake, the heavens drop rain. All of this, before this God, it is showing us who our God is, as, as always the Bible is doing. In verse 9, you shed abroad a plentiful rain, O God. You confirmed your inheritance when it was parched. Now again, let's go back. We talked about God riding through the clouds in verse 4. And that that was something that was often attributed to Baal. They believed Baal rode the clouds. And they believed that Baal provided rain. And what you see in this psalm in verse 9 is that it is the Lord who provides rain. Not 
Baal. Baal doesn't provide rain. Baal doesn't give blessings. Uh, It is the Lord who does this. I also want you to notice that while in verse 6 it was said that the rebellious dwelled in a parched land, the Lord in verse 9 gives a plentiful rain to his people. And in verse 10, your creature settled in it, you provided in your goodness for the poor, just as God provided for the orphan, for the widow, for the lonely, for the prisoners in verses 5 and 6. He is providing for the poor in verse 10. And God in his goodness is sending the rain and blessing them with all the people need. Okay. Any thoughts there? Any questions? Yes, right. It was kind of interesting to me that all the different kinds of people that he talked about, he singled out saying how God took care of them are maybe perhaps the kind of people that we would tend to overlook. Yes, I, I think all groups would tend to overlook. I mean, if you uh, if you brought into a group of people that would be considered in this country poor, another one that was poor, I think they would tend to overlook that one. But yes, I, I think you're exactly right that it shows us that from God's perspective, again, like we said earlier, His love for everyone is stressed by the fact that he doesn't leave behind anyone. He picks out the kinds most likely ignored or overlooked to stress his care and concern for each. And and you're exactly right. And I do think also uh, that it is... It's that and it's also the fact, and we were hinting at this before, that because of our circumstances in those situations, we may be more likely to see our need for Him. We are very blessed to live in such a prosperous place as we do. Um, As I have stated to you before, if you are on welfare in our country, you are in the top 5 to 7% in the world in income. We are very blessed. The poor in this nation do not look like the poor in a lot of nations. There are some exceptions to that, but but uh, generally that is true. And the curse of that, though, is that those of us who have been given so much have to work so hard to remember its source. Is that foolish? Yes. Is that true to life? Yes. Yes, it is. Okay. Now, in my feeble attempt to provide 
some kind of outline. And, and I'm not sure what to do with some of this, too. Some people think, well, this is kind of telling a story. Each step of the way, a further story in Israel's history. I, I don't know if I uh, buy that or not, but he does talk here about a message or a word from the Lord. And in verses 11 through 14, it may deal, there are some reasons to connect this message with some of the victories in the land of Canaan. There's one passage and one conflict that will particularly make its way into this section and into several sections of Psalm 68. In verse 11, the Lord gives the command or the word, the saying, the women who proclaim the good tidings are a great host. Kings of armies flee. They flee. That's exactly the uh, desired result in verse 1. But in verse 12, kings of armies flee. They flee. And she who remains at home will divide the spoil. When you lie down among the sheepfolds, you are like the wings of a dove covered with silver and its pinions with glistening gold. When the Almighty scattered the kings there, uh, it is snowing in Zalman. Now, uh, a lot said there that's difficult to, to figure out, but you notice that he twice makes reference to kings. In verse 12, kings were fleeing away. In verse 14, the Almighty scattered the king. So God is being victorious over kings in verses 12 and 14. Kings represent the strongest of men. Uh, when uh, Jehu had killed the king of Israel and the king of Judah, he had killed uh, Jehoram and Ahaziah. And he sent a message to the men of Samaria. Uh, Defend whichever son of Ahab you will. And I'll come and fight against you. And they said two kings could not stand before him. How could we stand? God is defeating the most powerful. He cares for the least. And he can defeat the most powerful. And the idea in verse 11, the Lord gives the word, the saying, the command. And women... Proclaim the good tidings as a great host. The women proclaim this. Now, this may be the idea that often we find when the victory is won, that women exercise a foremost role in celebrating victory. And you remember that uh, the women like um, Miriam in... Exodus 15, verses 20 and 21, that she and the women with her took their tambourines and they are celebrating. Uh, the, uh, the reason that Jeff ends up offering his daughter in Judges 11 is she come out to celebrate the news that he was victorious. And the women came to greet uh, King Saul 
after they returned from the battle with David. And that's when they sang their song, Saul has killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands in 1 Samuel 18, verses 6-9. So the women are celebrating the victory. And the Lord gives the command. The Lord has given victory. The women are celebrating. The kings of the armies have fled. And it also talks about, in verse 12, she who remains at home will divide the spoil. Now, what does that mean? She who remains at home will divide the spoil. So, I have a note that somebody points out that it's not just those who go off to battle who benefit, but everybody's taken care of. Okay, everybody shares in the victory, yes. That's, that's very true. Everybody, and that, that plays an important part, too, in something we'll see later on. Everybody plays a part in this victory. Um, can you think of an Old Testament story? And there's a couple, but where you see an emphasis on sharing the spoil after victory. When they went, the tribes to the east of the Jordan, they they were given shares of the spoil in Canaan. Okay, you talking about? I'm remembering that right. David's in David's time. Are are you talking about the? No, you're talking about the when Manasseh, Reuben, and Gad were sent back home. Yeah. Okay, in Joshua 22. I can't remember. I can't remember. We have other answers, Mary. So if you want to look that up, look that one up and see if that's the case. I saw Gary and then Boyd. And, what was it? I don't remember where it was uh, when the, uh, the lepers were out after God defeated the, uh, the great army and they were yeah. debating whether they should go in and share it. Yes. The, yeah. That's Second Samuel, or Second Kings 7. Excuse me. Second Kings 7. But yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. What is that Cicero? Is he talking about? No, no, he's not talking about Cicero. Where, where is Cicero? Where do we see him? Where, what chapter do you see him? You remember? I just, I just, I just thought of that. I, I didn't look it up. Okay, it's in Judges 5. That was the first one that came to my mind. Judges 5. Listen, now, now we know, knowing this whole story, Cicero, by the way, Cicero was a wicked person. Cicero was a bad guy. Cicero fought against the Lord and against his cause. And Cicero had been killed in battle. But this pictures his his uh, mother worried about this. Isaiah, did you have a... Joshua 22, 8. It is Joshua 22. They did divide the spoil. Okay. So, so Mary is right. Uh, Mary is uh, vindicated there before all. Um... And, um, but also I, in this passage, Cicero, you had thought there, Carter? Okay, what was your thought, buddy? My thought was that not just like the comment that Papa had, like it's not just one person, it's more than just one person fighting. Okay, it's more than, it's more than one person fighting, but sometimes if the Lord is fighting with you, that that's pretty good, isn't it? It just only takes one sometimes, doesn't it? In Romans eight thirty one, so very good point. Very good point. Just took, just took David, First Samuel seventeen. 
That is good. That's a good point, Carter. Um, but Sisera has, has been killed in the passage Boyd mentioned. And we know that he's not coming home. But it does picture in a poem that Deborah gives in Judges 5 verses 28 through 31. His mother is wondering, why is it taking him so long to get back? Why is it taking him so long? And it says, the reason is, and and the women tell her, are they not dividing the spoil? To a maiden, two maidens for every warrior. To Sisera, a spoil, a spoil of dyed work, a spoil of dyed work embroidered. Uh, in other words, they are taking so long to get back from the battle because they're just dividing up all the spoils. Now we know that's not the case in that ca- in that specific case, but one of the reasons is it does seem like one reason I pick out that one in particular is because it does seem like there are several references to Judges 5 throughout this this psalm. There are several references to it, it seems like. And so it may be that's foremost in his mind. You may say, where are the other references? Well, one of them is in the next verse, in verse 13. In verse 13, um, when you lie down among the sheepfolds, you are like the wings of a dove covered with silver and its pinions with glistening gold. Now, as many commentaries as you read, in every one of them you'll get a different idea for that last phrase, wings of a dove covered with silver and its pinions like glistening gold. But the first part is the part I'm trying to call attention to. When you lie down among the sheepfolds. In uh, Judges 5, Judges 5 and verse 16, you find this same kind of phrase that you use. Judges 5 and verse 16. It says about Reuben, Why do you sit among the sheepfolds to hear the piping of the flutes. Why do you sit among the sheepfolds? Uses the same kind of language as Judges 5 in that battle between Deborah and Barak and Sisera and Jabin. And, but one of the things that's interesting, when you look at Judges 5 in context, that is a criticism. That is a criticism. Now, one of the things that it leads me to think, and this builds on what Carter said here, that maybe this is telling us that God is fighting the battles and God is winning battles even when the soldiers are spending too much time sitting around pondering whether they should go. Even in these cases, God is giving victory. He is scattering kings. He is defeating foes. He is bringing down the enemy. Okay.
That's that's a thought. But it, it does seem to tie with this judge's period. Zalman. Tell me about Mount Zalman. What do you know about it in verse 14? Okay, Joshua 10 10. <laughs> I think it's. No. You, you, you may look at the wrong reference. Because yeah, it may mention Hale. Judges 948. Yes, Judges 948, right. No reference is a mountain near Shechem. Okay, it is a mountain. In Judges, in Judges 9. Verse 48, it is a mountain near Shechem. And that is, to my knowledge, the only time this place is mentioned in the Old Testament. And, and it's kind of mentioned there as it's talking about Abimelech who, I mean, all the judges on those Wall pictures have have frowning faces, but Abimelech's really got a frowning face. I, he is not a good guy at all, and I don't think he's even a judge. But kind of a opposite of all a judge should be. He's the kind of person from whom they need deliverance. But um, even then, he's going up to to bring destruction and sets a uh, tower in the city of Shechem on fire. So so Mount Zalman's only mentioned there in passing. Could this refer to something that is not recorded elsewhere? It could. And the text says it's snowing. It is snowing in Zalman. And first of all, do all your translations have there that it's snowing there? Do all of them have it? They do? It was white as snow. White as snow. This is the only time this word is used in the Old Testament. Like 15 words here, they're only used in this particular psalm. This is one of them. Now, does it often snow in Palestine? Not very much. Not very much. It did. Well, you, you know, you should have saved some of that and brought it back as proof waiting for this moment. I, I can remember one time seeing the heading while living in Tampa it said 49 states expect snow this weekend I thought I know the one where it's not going to be expected um, but uh, it doesn't snow a whole lot there it probably does more than it does in Tampa there's Susie but not a whole lot but this may be that God used the weather in some dramatic way to bring a, a memorable victory that's not even recorded for us elsewhere in Scripture. Because sometimes when snow is mentioned in Scripture, when snow is mentioned, it is emphasizing that God can use this even in battle kind of situations to bring victory. Now, now, David, you mentioned a passage earlier, and you, you called it back, kind of, but you mentioned Joshua 10. Joshua 10. What did God use? What part of weather does God use in Joshua 10 to bring victory? He said hailstones. 
in that chapter. He sent hailstones. But listen to what Job 38, 22, and 23 say about snow. It says, Have you entered into the storehouses of the snow, where the treasury of the snow? Have you seen the storehouses of hail? Which I've reserved, that's Job 28, or excuse me, Job 38, 22 and 23, Job 38, 22, 23. Which I have reserved for time of distress, for the day of war and battle. The store, it's like God has got this snow stored up. He has his hail stored up, which he is reserving for battle and reserving for war. God sometimes uses these means to disorient the foe and to bring his people victory. You see that, for example, in 1 Samuel 7, where the people prayed to the Lord, and the Lord, they were battling the Philistines. It was the time of year. It was wheat harvest when it did not rain. And God sends a thunderstorm. And that is credited to some degree in 1 Samuel 12 with disorienting the Philistines to the degree that Israel defeated them. And so this may just simply say the Almighty uses these kinds of means to bring down his foes. That may be the idea. Okay? Even back when we were trying to win our victory from the, the Brits, there were stories of the weather where fog came in so thick that it, it aided the, the underdog. And Yes, yes, okay. So we see that even to this day in battle that often weather can affect the outcome of a conflict. That, that, that is good to use an illustration like that where we can see it's not something limited to biblical times. Um, now, in verses 15 through 18, uh, it talks about, the text talks about the glory the glory of Zion. Um, does he use the term Zion? No, he doesn't use the term Zion. But the glory, let's just say then, the glory of God's dwelling place. Really interesting section. Uh, verse 15. A mountain of God... And some of your versions have there a great mountain or mighty mountain. A great mountain, a mighty mountain, or a mountain of God. Some There's a question, should the term Elohim be used as a noun referring to God or as an adjective modifying mountain? A mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan. A mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. Why do you look with envy, O mountain of many peaks? At the mountain where God has desired for his abode. Surely the Lord will dwell there forever. We're talking about God's dwelling place. The chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them as at Sinai in holiness. You have ascended on high. You have led captive your captives. You have received gifts among men. Even among the rebellious also. 
that the Lord may dwell there. This does not mention Mount Zion where the temple was built. But the idea is there. And the only mention, the only mountain he specifically mentions by name though is Mount Sinai in verse 17. He mentions that by name. But he mentions the dwelling place of God but does not name it Mount Zion or anything like this. But in a sense, as some have said, Sinai and Zion merge into one. These are both mountains at which God manifested His glory. God manifested His glory at Mount Sinai as the earth was shaking, as the lightning was sounding, as the smoke was going up like the smoke of a furnace and the people were terrified. God is showing His glory. He is showing His presence there. And He does the same at Mount Sinai or Mount Zion. When the people come in and bring the Ark of the Covenant into the temple, the Bible tells us that the glory of the Lord came down. The the lightning came down. It consumed the sacrifice on the altar. The fire of God came down. It consumed the sacrifice on the altar. The people fell on their faces. They said, the Lord He is God. The Lord He is God. And, and, and uh, or no, that was, that was Elijah. Uh, what they sing is He indeed is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. That's what they sing when the glory of God is shown there. But my point I'm trying to express both of these, though geographically different places, historically different events, are one. They're merged together because on these mountains, God is showing His power and glory. Okay, Susie, um, as a resident expert on the land of, of Palestine, and if you need help, Bob is there to help you, um, is... Mount Zion, it is almost as big as Mount Everest, isn't it? <laughs> no. Yeah, it, as a matter of fact, with all the mountains around it, it's, it's smaller than them. Isn't, did y'all see that part? Or, or were y'all not allowed to? The, the, the mountain that, you know, where the temple was. Okay. We were we didn't go inside, but um, but it is relatively a small mountain. But what you see in these pictures is that greater mountains are pictured in verse in verse sixteen. Now again, your translations may differ here because they think this word is only used once, and we don't know exactly what the best translation is. But you see in verse 16, why do you look with envy? You see the word envy? You have mountains in Bashan like Mount Hermon that are as high as 9,000 feet. From a standpoint of being impressive to look at, since climbing the heavens, Mount Hermon 
and other such mountains are much more impressive than Mount Zion. But in a way, Mount Hermon and the other large mountains, Thubation, are pictured as looking on Mount Zion with envy because it is the dwelling place of God. One writer said it. Let me try to find exactly how he said it. He said, um, okay, the glory of Mount Bashan is dwarfed by the holiness of Mount Zion. The glory, the height, the stature of Mount Bashan is dwarfed by the holiness of Mount Zion. It is like all other mountains are looking upon this mountain with envy because this is the mountain where the God of the universe dwells and has made his presence known in a special way. All of this to lead us to stand in awe of God. To stand in awe of Him. And you notice that around God, it said the chariots of God, verse 17, are myriads, thousands upon thousands. Remember when we read Numbers 10 at the beginning, and they started journeying out with the ark. They said, Return, O Lord, to the myriads, to the myriad thousands of Israel. And here the chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. God has all the armies of heaven at his disposal. You remember the account in 2 Kings 6 where the servant of God looked out and there were all kinds of horses and chariots uh, waiting around Elisha's house. And Elisha said, Do not be afraid. For those who are for us are more than those who are with them. And he said, Lord, open his eyes. And he opened the servant's eyes. And he saw horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. There are chariots of God, myriads, thousands upon thousands. And God is pictured as coming up on high. God ascends to his